All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome. It's great to have all of you with us. This episode is packed. We will dive into part two of our fantastic interview with Coach Adam Saransic. That'll be coming to you in just a moment. First, I want to touch on a few topics, an intro message that I think can be very helpful for all of us coaches. First, it's great to be here to help all of you along on your mission to be solid youth coaches, solid youth baseball parents, and even for those players that are listening, to be better youth players. Always great to be here each week. It's great to get so many emails from coaches sharing out their appreciation for 80-20 baseball and their success from using all the stuff we talk about here, as well as all the information over at 8020baseball.com. I do have a small ask. If you could just take a few minutes and leave a rating, a review for the 8020 Baseball Podcast on your podcast app, that would mean a lot, and it's the best way to support the show. Well, that and forwarding the link to this show to a good friend or two. Much appreciated. Can't believe it's already been five years since we started 8020 Baseball. The podcast is at about year four. Now, this podcast is for those of you that appreciate the 80-20 principle and its usefulness, not just in baseball, but in all areas of life. By the way, I heard the 80-20 principle brought up four more times in four different places in just the past week, all saying great things about its effectiveness, giving a praise. That makes seven times in the past two weeks, seven different people have mentioned or talked at length about how they use the 80-20 principle to guide them more efficiently to success. This podcast is for all of you that are high-level thinkers and high-level prioritizers. It's for those of you that understand that the world and life revolve around trade-offs, and we're okay with that. And in fact, we are going to leverage this truth, the truth of trade-offs being everywhere in life, to become better coaches much faster. This podcast is also specifically for those of us who understand that youth baseball is very different in many ways in many key areas from college and pro-level baseball. And for those of us who embrace that and seek to optimize this reality, lastly, this podcast is designed for coaches who want a faster paced podcast that cuts out much of the dead air and filler and want quality information in a more efficient manner. Because all of us, our lives are busy, full of many activities, outings, work, people, family members, friends, taking care of our health, getting sleep. So let's not waste time getting better. And that's what this podcast is here for, to get us all better efficiently. So one difference between old school and new school. Now, the intro from Donald, who did my intro, man, Donald has a good voice, doesn't he? The intro message and the outro. And it says we're not about the old school, the new school, just trying to find the best way. Though I think it's important to understand old school, new school, the differences, and how not to get partisan and caught up in being one or the other, but rather just being great baseball coaches. One of the flaws I see with the new school approach, typically younger coaches sharing out information, it's kind of that chasing new things, 
shiny objects, MO, and they're more likely to be looking to add new things from different angles. For example, it seems to me that the new school approach as an online presence is prioritizing the filling up of people's feeds, posting, tweeting, emailing, a new take, a new idea, a new strategy every day. While the old school approach is a little more conservative insofar as what works, works. And there's no need to keep making content up to fill up feeds and fill up YouTube channels. It really confuses a lot. It wastes a lot of time. If you go to 8020baseball.com, my videos, the articles over there, they've stayed the same because that stuff flat out works. And the thoughts and principles behind those articles, those videos have been thought out over years and years, if not decades. And I'm not just going to rewrite, rehash those articles to fill up feeds and post more things. It's more about quality content than click quantity. Hey, there's a lot of great things new coaches are putting out there, a lot of good information. I'm definitely progressive with my thinking insofar as I'm always asking, is there a better way? Or why is it we do this? But I'm not just going to be different, contrarian to be contrarian. That's not progressive. That's regressive. We chase so many things and it gets us further from what really works. So I wanted to share that quick thought about that topic or idea. Now, I was watching a football game, Colorado versus USC, about half the game this past Saturday. And I'm going to tie this in with being a youth coach or a youth parent. So the Colorado football quarterback did not throw the ball on fourth down, but rather took a sack. And the announcers were not very sympathetic. They said multiple times, you need to know better. He needs to know better. He can't take the sack there. He's just got to throw the ball. It's fourth down into the game. He needs to know better. He can't take the sack in that situation. Well, this was Saturday afternoon quarterbacking. The announcers, I thought, had to be a little more sympathetic. First off, these are college players, not professional players. But more specifically, when we're watching on TV or when you're watching from the booth announcing the game, we have a much better view of everything that's going on. We're not on the field with a helmet on trying to find receivers. We're sitting in a chair or on a couch and we have this wide camera angle or this wide view. And for these announcers, they're looking down. So they have a really, they have a bird's eye view of what's going on. And the announcers, in my opinion, need to be more empathetic and understanding when these players make mistakes. The same can be said for youth baseball coaches. I have no problem with these announcers blasting players, even college players, for their lack of hustle or bad attitudes, but not physical errors that look avoidable from an overhead panoramic view. But in reality, this quarterback did not see that linebacker from USC coming from behind him. We all saw the linebacker coming from behind. We all saw it. We had a great angle. We had a camera angle. They had the overhead angle, the announcers, that is. The quarterback didn't have that angle. The linebacker was behind him, and it wasn't like the quarterback held the ball too long. The play developed quick, the pressure got to him fast, and the college kid got sacked before he could throw the ball. Now, as coaches and parents, we need to make sure we distance ourselves from this dialogue or this paradigm, this mindset. We need to understand that playing sports in the game at that very moment is not that easy. And it always looks more crystal clear. It always looks easier standing 100 feet back, 50 feet back, 500 feet back, watching on TV or watching with a slow motion replay. That was a specific example from a college football game that I saw, but this is something that I see in youth sports all the time. And it's something that we need to back off on as coaches and parents 
and we'll be a lot better. And it goes hand in hand with addressing every physical mistake players make. One of the reasons is because we don't have all the answers. Even if we think we do, we don't. And second, we're not seeing it from their point of view, on the field, live, at game speed. So let's take it easy on these kids and players. I'm all for a firm addressing when it comes to a lack of hustle. I'm all for that. Or a bad attitude, slamming equipment, saying something to the umpire. I'm all for dropping the hammer on that. But remember, the game always looks easier from the sideline because we have a much better view, a much wider view. And also, we can think about what went wrong after we went wrong and tell ourselves that we would have done X, Y, or Z. The problem is, when it happens live, it's bang, bang. And we can sit there and try to solve what went wrong in our heads over the matter of five seconds, 30 seconds, two minutes. But kids don't have that much time to make that play. So let's be a little more patient, sympathetic, empathetic of physical errors out on the field. I had a follow-up to situational hitting. So I took a, I thought, I don't think it's a bold stance. I think when you really think about it, if you're going to be honest about situational hitting, this quote, situational hitting thing that's been around since beginning of baseball, I'm sure. If you're really honest, if you're not tied to the belief, rather, if you truly are open-minded and you're not just stuck in your ways and you are willing to question everything, not just to be different, but to really question it, see if there's a better way or if it's really the best way. It's really hard to look at situational hitting, especially at the youth level, much less the higher levels, and say, yeah, we should really be coaching up situational hitting rather than a good hitting plan, a good hitting approach. The fundamentals. Situational hitting is not a fundamental. It's not a foundational piece of hitting. It's like the icing on top of the icing on the cake. And also, situational hitting is not fully within the hitter's control. And I don't like an approach that can be deterred by the pitch. Hey, I need you to hit the ball to the right side to move that runner over. But coach, he threw me a changeup on the inside corner at the knees. That pitch has got to be smoked for a base hit or a double into the pull side gap, not manipulated into going the other way. In fact, I thought about this. How many strike three lookings do your players and team have each game and in the season? How many strike three looking do they have? Tally that up. Let's say you play 20 games and your team has two strike three lookings a game. That's 40. Let's say 40 strike three lookings in a 20 game season. 40. Now let's say 10 of those were bad calls by the umpire. Let's just say 10. Probably not, but let's just say. So now there's 30 strike three lookings during the season. That should have never happened. And they probably not more than five of those would have happened if you would have really hammered home the hitting approach, the hitting plan, pitch selection, being ready, being on time, your hitters having the yes, 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 no approach rather than the no, 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 yes approach, or it's go, 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 and then put on the brakes if it's not that pitch, but they're ready to hit. If you've practiced and trained them up so they know exactly what pitches they should be swinging at and what pitches they shouldn't be swinging at, doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but 30 to 40 strikeouts a season looking, maybe more for some teams. That's a lot of outs and a lot of those situations surely happen with the bases loaded, runners in scoring position, runner on third base, a strike three looking to end the inning, leaving runners on base. How many runs is that costing your team versus how much more run production are you going to have by coaching up situational hitting? Assuming your hitters can hit the ball exactly where they want. Your hitters are having a tough time just hitting the ball hard or maybe hitting consistent line drives. Now you want them to hit the ball at a certain location. Now I'm all for some situational bunting with the drag bunt, especially at the youth level. When that third baseman's playing back, drag bunt. You got an unathletic pitcher on the mound, drag bunt. You got a pitcher, a third baseman that are struggling, that are not making plays, drag bunt. Get that base hit. A quick late show bunt. Get a hit off that. I'm all for that kind of situational stuff. 
but avoid the situational hitting. It's been around forever. It's talked about all the time. I'm telling you, you're ahead of the game. If you avoid that at the youth level, don't coach it up. With regard to telling hitters to hit it to a certain spot in a certain situation, in a certain count with a certain amount of outs, and a certain score on the scoreboard, I'd love to survey major league hitters that we watch, and I'd like to ask them how many times they were trying to do something with a pitch, how many times they were trying to situationally hit, and failed. I mean, of course, we see it when it works, assuming that that's what they were actually trying to do, and it wasn't just coincidence. But I bet a lot of weak comebackers to the mound, a lot of weak hits, a lot of jam shots, a lot of pop-ups were a result of unsuccessful situational hitting, the attempt to situationally hit, rather than just honing in a simple quality approach of hitting line drives and swinging at the right pitches. All right, moving on. I have an analogy. We will never be great coaches until we prioritize the development, the long-term development, big picture with our players, rather than the immediate temporary short-term winning. This is very similar to our eating habits. I believe that we're never going to improve our diet. And this is not about, I'm not going to get into nutrition and stuff, but it's just an analogy that we see day to day with our diets. You know, we all, we all are trying to probably eat better. I'm always trying to get better with my eating, but we'll never be great coaches until we truly prioritize and truly believe that the long-term development, the big picture with our players of coaching up our players is more important than the immediate temporary short-term winning. This is very similar to eating, our eating habits, improving our diet as hard as it is and as impossible as it feels. The only way to really have success with eating habits or any bad habit, the only way to have true success of breaking bad habits, or in this case, breaking the habit of eating poorly, is prioritizing our long-term health, our big picture health, our overall health, the big picture of our life, rather than those few moments, those few minutes of super tasty food going across our palate. By prioritizing the hours and the days and the weeks and the years of super great health over those few minutes each day that that tasty food that we really want, but probably isn't the best thing for us all the time is going across our palate. You know, I was sitting there eating the other day and over the years, my eating habits have gotten better. They were really bad in my 20s. In my 30s, they got a lot better. Probably lost 30 pounds of fat, maybe 35, depending on the scale. And it wasn't until I started to prioritize the big picture. It wasn't until I started prioritizing, essentially, let's say we're awake for 16 hours a day and we're eating for 30 minutes a day. It wasn't until I prioritized the other 15 and a half hours rather than the 30 minutes of just eating all that junk that I was eating. I don't eat perfect, but it's been a lot easier and I've been a lot more successful because I prioritize the other 15 and a half hours of my day over the 30 minutes that I'm actually tasting the food, the 10 minutes, the 15 minutes I'm actually tasting food. And the same can go with coaching. Until we prioritize the next 60 years of our players' lives, maybe 70 or 80 years of their lives, until we prioritize that and put that ahead of the immediate temporary short-term focus on winning, winning at all costs, until we prioritize that, we'll never be great coaches. And the good news is you're here, you're getting this message. I know you're here because you want to be great coaches. You want to be solid coaches. You want to be consistently good coaches. Speaking of being consistently good, I do recommend, and I recommended this a while back, but I want to hit on it again. I recommend the Daily Dad email. It's a quick email. It's about a one-minute read every day. It's called the Daily Dad. It's a Daily Dad newsletter. You can use it for parenting and coaching, and it's a nice little morsel of a quality reminder every morning. So I recommend the Daily Dad email. And before we jump into part two of our interview, I want to say this. We want to coach our players on what to do, not what not to do. So remember, let's coach our players on what to do, not what not to do. 
So when we're out there as coaches, just keep an eye on these words that we use. Are we saying, hey, don't do that? We don't want to do this or we don't want to do that. Are we saying that a lot? We're saying that more often than we're saying something to the effect of, we want to do this. We want to do that. This is how we're going to do it. This is the expectation. This is what I'm looking to see. This is how it should look. So keep in mind when we're out there to be better coaches, we should coach our players on what to do, not what not to do. A big part of this or big reason behind this strategy and way of going about coaching is that it imprints, it gives players the visual because when we tell them to do something or not to do something, you know, a lot of them will see it or they'll kind of visualize it. And we want them to visualize it done correctly. And the other part of it is we want our players playing fast and free and not afraid. We want them running at the goal and not running away from mistakes. That's another big part of why it's good to coach that way versus the alternative. All right, now for part two of our interview with Coach Adam Sarancic. This segment of the interview is loaded with quality information, actionable advice, and I definitely recommend listening closely to all of it as it's packed with youth coaching and parenting wisdom. Just to note, the audio gets a little spotty here and there when we do these interviews remote, but with wisdom and experience that comes with Coach Sarancic, also comes the dial-up internet. All jokes aside, this segment of the interview is solid and very enlightening. So let's get into it. It lasts about 25 minutes. So now for the interview. All right, let's dive into the role of a parent in developing a young athlete. Most of these interviews that I've done, we have questions scripted out, but I thought with you, with your knowledge and your experience, I thought it would just be good to have a nice little conversation, and let you roll with it. So wherever you want to start with this, the role of a parent in developing a young athlete. So three categories, you can tell how I think and how I do my coaching and how I approach life and stuff. We're going to talk about general parenting outside of the sport. And then we're going to talk about what they can do in the sport by preseason. And then we're going to talk about what they can do during the game or in the season. I'm going to try to be hit the highlights without getting too far down the rabbit hole, as they say, because any one of these topics can be a show in and of itself. But these are really important things. Uh, it's challenging nowadays to be a parent and to manage kids in sports and manage a family with multiple kids in not just sports, but whatever their extracurricular activities are. But let's just stick with sports and let's talk about general parenting. The very first thing a parent has to realize is there's a saying in sports that you cannot become on the field what you're not off of it. Okay. Parents today work so hard and they want to provide so much to their children, understandably. But sometimes we go overboard as providers and we don't take a step back and challenge our kids to be self-advocate and to do things enough on their own and just be supporters of whatever happens, okay? We try to protect our kids too much with not failing not having disappointment in their life, always making the best and highest team, always trying to level them up. And sometimes we need to take a step back and just say, you know what? I want you to do your best. And instead of trying to micromanage your every step and try to pave the way for you, I'm just going to support the outcome and just encourage you to keep trying. So I was saying, don't over provide and under support. Because I think parents sometimes don't understand what support really means. Support use those synonymously, providing and supporting. Supporting is just letting the kid be what they want to be and just say, you know what, I'm here for you. And you have to understand what a growth mindset and failure is. And it's okay. It's okay. All right. You don't always have to measure up with your results. It's just your effort I'm concerned with. And those kind of character things, coaches can tell. 
employers can tell whether you've been coddled your whole life or as I say, you know the difference between a favor and a chore. Okay, taking out the trash is not a chore. It's a favor. Cleaning your room, not a chore. It's a favor. A chore is something that takes a half an hour and you work up a sweat, okay? So we coaches know at any level, A, there's this level kid that says, coach shows up early, what can I do to help? That's a next level character kid. A next level above that, how many kids coach on your team after they've done what you ask them to do, come back to you and say, now what can I do to help? They're looking for more work to do. That's really rare. But you know what? Those are the kids that get the college scholarships. Those are the kids that get the jobs and get promoted. And it's because their parents established that work ethic and that character building philosophy early on. So challenge the kids to be good in whatever aspect of life they're involved in as a student, as an athlete, as a player, and don't jump in to save them all the time. Let them build character. When it comes to performance, really emphasize these things. I have a saying that grades are like batting averages. Batting averages are like grades. I don't care whether you're a straight A student. I don't care if you hit 500. I care about three things. Number one, how high were the standards? Number two, how tough was the competition? And number three, most importantly, how hard did you have to work for it? Okay. I coach a lot of players from a high school, local high school here. Two years ago, they had 19 valedictorians. 19. They gave out A's like candy. Didn't mean very much. And the colleges around the West Coast know that too. Big difference between that school being valedictorian at that school and a different school. And, and I won't get into names and stuff like that. But make sure that you're challenging your kids and it's not always about the result. Those three things are really important. How high were the standards? How tough was the competition? And most importantly, how hard are they having to work for it? Secondly, don't get caught up in the seduction and the obsession with sports. It is absolutely overboard off the charts. Our kids are getting A's in school as students, but they're not having to work very hard. And, and our parents are saying, well, he's a great student. He's getting all A's. So therefore, he can play multiple sports at the same time. He can play on one team during the week on a travel ball team uh, on the weekend. And we're trying to have a sports center moment that we can get on sports center or TV or whatever. And that's our goal. Right. This whole obsession with year-round sports, multiple sports, and driving our kids to do more and more, we got to back off and, and really realize, is this kid being sent a message about what's really important, the balance in life that's important to be a good student, to do charity work, et cetera, et cetera? Or are we just driving for more trophies and more medals and, and playing it for the team that's going to travel the most and get the most awards, all right? So this whole balance is really gotten out of hand. It's, it's just not given a, the priority that it needs to be. And the other thing is that it's very seductive in that everybody jumps in line to do what everybody else is doing. And yet I was saying one size fits one, Okay. We're all going to go play travel ball. We're all going to play club ball. We're all going to go try to make this team so that we can travel all around. And yet, is that really what's best for the kid in our family? 
Okay. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more here. Let's don't get so caught up in this obsession and seduction with sports. Here's something that after going through COVID has received a lot of publicity that I don't think enough parents are taking seriously enough, especially the parents that are out there driving the kids and allowing the kids to play multiple sports at the same time or on multiple teams at the same time. I have a saying, never assume mental and emotional stability from athletic ability. All right. Met- mental and emotional stability from athletic ability. Parents and coaches assume that because this player is really good, everything's good inside of them, that all is good at home, all is good you know, at school, all is good because this player is really good. And yet you and I know we've had some tragic stories come into the news media, news feeds in the past five or 10 years of elite athletes taking their own lives or getting involved in some really awful things because parents just assume, wow, he's a great athlete. Everything must be going good. And yet at home, parents are struggling with their jobs. Their relationship is struggling and they don't realize the impact that has on kids. And that's why this balance is so important and make sure that are we really good here? Is this really what is best for you and our family? Is this really what you want to do and not me again, trying to be a provider of the best for you? So I think we have to be really careful about how we're pushing our kids. The second thing I want to go into briefly is the preseason or offseason stuff. Here's like I mentioned, something that is, is happening over and over again. A parent immediately wanting to level up their player. And what we mean by that, of course, is my kid's the best on the team. I don't think he's being challenged. He or she really needs a higher level of competition, more coaching. That's going to make them a better player. The assumption is the higher level playing against older kids or on a travel ball team is going to make them a better player. Again, I think we need to slow down and ask some key questions here. First and foremost, by their actions, what is the kid indicating they want? You and I, coach, know that we can tell a kid that's really bought in as a youth to the sport by not just how well he plays, but is he the first one there loud to believe? Is he upset that practice is over and he's dying for it to keep going? Is he practicing on his own time to get better? Right. That's a kid that's really bought in and maybe is ready for something more as opposed to a kid that's just good. All right. He just might be good, but it's not something that he's really bought into. What can they handle personally and emotionally? The kid is all smiles and is all pumped when he gets a big hit, hits a bomb. How does he act on the mound when he gives up a bomb himself? What happens when he makes an error? What happens when he has to handle adversity? How emotionally is he handling that? If he's not handling it, then I'm not sure that leveling up right now is really what he needs because emotionally he may just crumble. And yes, you want to push them. Yes, you want to challenge them, but just be really careful that they're ready for it. Watch how they're acting out at school. All right. If they're doing okay on the baseball field, but at school, we're starting to hear some rumblings about, well, he's not trying as hard in his classes, not really putting in the effort. He's getting into some discipline problems at school. We need not to add to the stress level by leveling them up and adding to the pressure. What can the family handle? Okay. This is going to be a stress on the family and all of their obligations to their other children, right? And if we're going to go about play club ball, travel ball, we're going to spend X number of thousand on the kid. But what about the expenses for hotels, meals, not just for the kid, but 
for the family members, et cetera. Can we really handle that? I think also a lot of families overlook the alternatives that are right in front of them. Let's just say in Oregon, we have junior baseball, we have Cal Ripken ball, we've got Babe Ruth ball, we've got travel ball, club ball. We've got a lot of different options at the same age. And of course, we have little league. You don't have to level them up to a club ball or travel ball program. Maybe you go and play junior baseball as opposed to little league. Maybe you go and play Cal Ripken ball, whatever. There might be a different same age group, just different league that you can get your player into that may not require as much travel and stress on the family, may just be a better quality program and league, maybe better players in that league without adding to the the stress on the family. Here's the thing. Let's not feed into the big fish in a small pond syndrome. Every parent who has the best player on the team as their child immediately wants to level them up. And yet, are they really that good? Have you asked somebody who really knows another coach that's been coaching for 15 or 20 years in the league, whether that player is really ready to level up and is really good? Maybe you should go watch a practice at the higher level team and say, is my son or daughter really as good as I think they are? Can they really handle that practice? Are they really as good? Or are we just playing on a not so good team in a not so good league? And then finally, just because the team is a higher level team, quite honestly, coach, doesn't mean the coaching is any better. Just be really careful that you don't sign up for a new team because that coach is a former college player former pro player, has won a lot of trophies and medals and whatever. There's a whole lot of teams that are winning medals or trophies against pretty mediocre competition. I have a saying that a $300 aluminum bat can disguise a lot of flaws, okay? So they may not be really very good. Some benchmarks there, do they coach the person as well as the athlete, as well as the player, okay? They have to have all three components. If they are not, for example, if they're warming up by running to a foul pole and back or a tree and back, uh, it's not your team. If their dynamic movement routine is something they're not actually coaching, they're just telling the kids to go out and do it while they go prep the field or talking to other coaches, not something that you should get involved in. We want them to coach from beginning to end in all parts of the program with the same level of attention and detail and effort. Okay. Another big topic, uh, off-season topic, is sports specialization. Talked about this, so I'll just be brief here. But this whole thing of do we, as parents, have our kids play baseball year-round or multiple sports at the same time? What's really going to get our son or daughter to be the best possible player that they can be? Well, first of all, they're not getting recruited if they're not a good person and a well-rounded person. So let's don't forget that. But just from an athletic and a sports point of view, I would agree up to about eighth grade, getting them to do as many different athletic things. It doesn't have to be always in an organized sport. I think that's sometimes a mistake that we make, thinking that we have to go and play soccer, football, basketball, baseball, whatever. But then get them to do as many different things to challenge their body and to learn how to move in a coordinated, synchronized manner is a key. Starting at about eighth grade, if they seem to be one of these kids that's really taken to a sport and they want to seemingly, and you want to try to get them to play at the highest level, but you have to look at it a little more carefully about what you're going to do. It is almost never the right thing to have them play games year round. 
most of the time, exposure is going to get you exposed. You're not as good as you think you are. Playing games is merely a mirror of how well your training has been, okay? So to play year-round baseball, spring, summer, fall, whatever, not the way to go. That's almost never the case. However, because most of the D1 programs, the elite ones for sure, are going to and the transfer portal has modified this a little bit, but still, they're going to give out most of their scholarships and their scholarship offers that they're going to commit to in a way by the time the player is at best the end of the junior year. So you really only have four years to develop yourself as a player uh, to get that D1 scholarship to play at the highest level. So getting in about eighth grade, you might have to take a step back and say, all right, we definitely need to take four or five months to train to get better as an athlete first. The best athletes have the potential to be the best players. So we got to train four or five months to be the best athlete. And then uh, at the same time, we may need to hire somebody if it's and most of the time, it's not the case to sharpen our individual skills so that we can get better as a player instead of in multiple sports may still be the right thing to do. In addition to hiring a nationally certified strength and conditioning coach who's a movement specialist to be a better athlete, playing multiple sports may be the right thing. But I think we're looking sometimes at the wrong sports. I spent a lot of time coached football practices, soccer practices, basketball practices. There's not as much athletic training going on there as theoretically you might think. Kids are being told what to do, run faster, push harder, jump higher, but they're really not given instruction on how to do those, how to, for example, apply and transfer forks, okay? How to load your hip, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They're nearly not being given instruction individually, and they're not even getting enough playing time watching football games and stuff. You got two-thirds of the team that's sitting three-quarters of the game. Is that really going to make them a better athlete? Same thing in practices. They're still having the ones out there getting most of the reps. So what I think needs to be done is from a parenting point of view, if it's really your goal to get them to be the best they can be, how about we do martial arts twice a week and two or three times a week go train with a nationally certified strength and conditioning coach who's a movement specialist instead of getting just involved in the typical sport. Maybe that's the better way to go about it. I just think they need to step back and take a look at martial arts, take a look at swimming, take a look at rock climbing, skateboarding. Some of the alternative sports really use your body in a more holistic way. And for a young athlete in particular, is going to be more beneficial than just signing up like everybody else does on the soccer team, the basketball team, the football team. There's some other things really quickly I'll mention, and that is, does that player have the same growth mindset to every sport as they do to the primary sport? Is he really able to work hard and accept failure in football and basketball like he is in baseball? Uh, are you getting the same quality coaching person, athlete, player in football and basketball as they are in baseball? Is he the second team guard and the second team power forward, a second team guard in football, second team power forward in basketball, but the starting third baseman in baseball? There's a whole lot of factors that really go into whether this sports specialization is the right thing. And then finally, in the offseason, the athletic training, I've said before, make sure you're hiring the right trainer that's got the right credentials and the right experience and make sure that they 
functional demands of your sport. And they should constantly be asked, how is this drill? How is this exercise going to help me in my sport? And then once you've hired that person, just step aside and let that person do what you've hired them to do. Now, at home, does that mean you can't do anything? Well, no, absolutely. You can work on form at home without the weight, for example, to make sure they're continuing to work on the form. You can emphasize nutrition, not just for the athlete, but for the parents and the whole family. You can make sure that their pre and post mobility, stability, movement prep routines and cool down routines are being given the priority that they should be because sometimes you go train with somebody, it's a 50 minute program and they've got the athleticism piece dialed in, but they really neglected the mobility, stability, movement prep, ab core piece going in and the recovery piece afterwards. So you can definitely do those things as a parent. And then the final category, what can parents do during the game and during the season? First of all, read my book, A Ground Ball of Short Stuff, uh, How and Why Coaches See the Game Differently Than Anyone Else. That's something that'll give them a different perspective of how coaches see players. They don't just see them as players. They see them as people. They see them as athletes. And sometimes winning may not be the most important thing for the youth level. In my opinion, the youth level, and quite frankly, even at the high school level for the freshman team, V1, the JV2 teams, it's about development. Everybody should play multiple positions, an infield position, an outfield position. Anybody who's worked and trained and put in the extra time to be a pitcher and be a catcher should be allowed to pitch and catch. I don't care if they're one of your best pitchers or catchers or not. They should be allowed to, to train to those. They're, they're going to develop as people and as athletes so much more if you give them the opportunity to put in the extra time to be good pitchers and catchers. So it's a development thing. The parents need to step back and say, okay, so-and-so admit may not be our one, two, or three when it comes to pitching, but you know what? He deserves to pitch. You and I, coach, have seen a ton of threes and fours be ones and twos in high school just because somebody believed in them as a youth player, right? You've got to be versatile. When you're trying to make the varsity team, two things you got to do. You got to hit and you got to be versatile because if you can hit, they're going to find a place for you to lay. So in your youth, you need to play multiple positions and have the confidence that wherever the coach puts you, you can play. For whatever players are listening out there, the answer to the question, anytime you're asked, whether it's at a showcase or to make a team at school or whatever, what position do you play? The answer is always the same. Whatever position I need to play to help the team win. Whatever position I need to play to help the team win. So parents have to understand, coaches play the best nine, not the nine best. Meaning that we're not taking the nine best players and putting them out of the field. We're putting the, the best nine that works the best as a unit, that's the team we're putting out there. So you have to understand that this guy may not be as good a hitter, but if we're better on defense having him at second, you may have to go play right field or center field. You may be a better second baseman or a better shortstop than these guys, but if it helps our team to play better, to have you play a different position, you need to be willing to do that. And the parent needs to understand it's all about the best nine, not the nine best. Finally. The one that we all probably violate more often, and I'm guilty of this. The last time a player wants to hear constructive criticism, so to speak, about how they played is right after the game. I tell all my coaches, you know what? I'm not going to forget how I played. I'm not going to forget how we played by the next practice. Keep all your comments after the game positive. Every one of them positive. 
get feedback from the team, get feedback from the coaches and make everything positive. If you're a parent, just remember what it was like when you were a player riding home in the car. You did not want to hear from mom or dad about what you could have done better. You're already hard enough on yourself, right? You're already hard enough on yourself. So keep it positive, keep it short, and save the coaching and the teaching for tomorrow or another time, okay? And you'll get your player a lot happier, okay? So, and that was a lot. Sorry about that, but that's the role of the parent in development. That's gold right there. I got 20 bullet point notes here. And I've already read a lot of your stuff. Now, I'm going to hit on one and we'll dive into your the last topic. Um, you play the best nine, not the nine best. Now, I don't want to dive too far into this because it is the major leagues, but it really makes me think of the Padres versus the Dodgers. The Padres maybe have the nine best, but they don't have the best nine. And I called it out a couple of years ago. I said, hey, they're getting a lot of good players. But I said, I don't know. I'm not sold. I wasn't sold. I got on this podcast. I'm on record. And I don't know Manny Machado personally, but I just watched him play with his teammates and I didn't get a good vibe. I've also years ago told my best friend who's a season ticket holder, the Angels, I said, I like Mike Trout as a player. I don't know if he's elevating his team like most leaders do. I know he's a stud. I know he generates runs and his war is off the charts and he'll go down as one of the greats. I know his team around him has been really bad, but even then, I, I didn't see him lifting his team when I'd watch him really close. So it's not the nine best, the best nine. And I always say, don't fall for the talent tease. I love your quote. Don't over provide and under support. Just recapping real quick. You're more concerned with the effort. I love that. Just the effort, not necessarily the result, but the effort towards the process. I really like how you said, don't get caught up with the obsession of sports overdoing it. I had this talk this morning when I was talking to that dad at the school. And he said, you know what? My main focus is making sure we balance it for my two sons. They play baseball, but we go skiing. And I mentioned to him what you said. I mentioned jujitsu. And I think getting a strength and conditioning coach once a week or getting on a plan from a strength and conditioning coach, that's huge. Yeah. Let me just give you a quick example of something that was experienced by one of my high school players going through my career and college counseling class. What I try to do is get them out of the theoretical and into reality by getting them internships or job shadows or whatever. So he did an internship. He thinks major in business marketing at college. And so I got him a job at a company. I have a friend who's the CEO of an event planning company here in Portland. And he went in with his questions. He was all prepared to learn as much as he could. And he asked the director of marketing, he said, so how does a person get an interview? And how does a person actually get a job? What is it that is the determining factor or factors that have this person make it through all those resumes to actually get the interview? And then after being interviewed, be the one chosen. And he said, coach, it was very much like my varsity coach. She said, what's going to get you the interview? All of your tangibles, your great grades, your letters of recommendation, your transferable skills. Okay. The things that we can immediately plug and play into our needs at this company. Just like in baseball, the uh, high school player is going to be judged by the college recruiter. Does that person already look familiar to me? Because I see that player every day at practice on our college team. So all I need to do is pick, plug, and play, and I can see that guy playing for us. That's going to get you considered as a college athlete. That's going to get you the interview. But you know, coach, you know what she said when I asked her, well, then how do I actually get the job? She said, that comes down to character. Can I see you and who you are as a person fitting in 
with our team? Can I see you and your personality meshing and gelling with our team? And he says, that's the same thing in baseball or in sports. Your college coach is going to say, okay, I've gone through all of these showcases, area code games, whatever, throughout the whole country. And I've got three shortstops that I really like who throw the baseball, feel the baseball, hit the baseball well. Who am I going to give the scholarship to? That person whose character, whose intangibles rise to the level that I know will fit with our team. And that's the same thing that the person said who is the director of marketing. Your tangibles will get you the interview. Your intangibles are going to get you the job. Awesome. All right. That's going to wrap up part two of our interview with Coach Adam Sarancic. Part three next week. And part three may very well be the best of all of them. So be sure to check in next Tuesday when the next episode of the 8020 Baseball Podcast Youth Coaching Masterclass comes out. I will also share out a specific example with all of you of how I have used the 8020 principle over the past month and the success that's come from it. Has to do with sports, has to do with coaching, and how this is the same approach we can all use to get our players better faster. Also head over to 8020baseball.com, grab your free drill design guide, and leave a review, a rating, a quick review rating for this podcast to help support us. And until next week, take care of your health, your families, those close friends, and take this information out to the field and put it into action or get it ready to put into action. Put it into your plans, talk it over with other coaches, other friends of yours, so you can fine tune it for the upcoming season. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.